Thank you for joining us for today's Insight for Living Bible teaching broadcast. Here at Insight for Living Canada, we want to make sure you can catch the broadcast, even when the time is inconvenient for you. So we've developed a way for the broadcast to come to you by email. We call it EmailCast. Here's how it works. When you sign up at insightforliving.ca slash emailcast, we'll automatically send you a daily email with links to that day's 30-minute Insight for Living, our 5-minute Life Track, featuring some of Chuck's best stories, and our 1-minute Insights audio devotionals for those days when you're stretched for time. Visit insightforliving.ca slash emailcast to subscribe to this free service. That's insightforliving.ca slash emailcast. If you had the opportunity to sit down with Jesus for a one-on-one conversation, what might you ask him? Given the same opportunity, what do you think Jesus would want to say to you? Well, for several of Jesus' friends, this wasn't a hypothetical situation. The disciples actually sat down with Jesus along a lake for a chat. And today on Insight for Living, Chuck Swindoll describes their exchange and what these moments tell us about the character of Jesus. Chuck is teaching from John chapter 21, and he titled today's message, Listening to Jesus Beside the Sea. I want to read for you from the last chapter of the Gospel by John, chapter 21, beginning at verse 12, and we'll read down through uh, the 22nd verse. Very intimate scene beside the, the Sea of Galilee, called by John in the first verse, the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, John 21, verse 12. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved Because he said to him the third time, do you love me? 
And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, therefore, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. You're listening to Insight for Living. To dig deeper into the Bible with Chuck Swindoll, be sure to download his Searching the Scriptures guide by going to insightforliving.ca slash studies. Chuck calls today's message, Listening to Jesus Beside the Sea. Anyone who travels to the Holy Land will remember spending time on the Sea of Galilee. I know, I know, when you go to Jerusalem, there's something cultural and theological and historic about that city. Nothing can really take the place of Jerusalem. But there's something about that sail across the Sea of Galilee that just stays with you. It just deepens your love for the things of God. Uh, I think part of the reason that I love it so much is that there's no way in the world they can cover over the Sea of Galilee with a lot of religious trappings. I mean, you never really know for sure what level was the birth of Christ when you're over there because it's so covered up with all of the religion of the times that had passed over the centuries. Or was this really the place where he fed the 5,000? Or can we really say for sure that this was the tomb from which he was raised? Or Golgotha, where he was crucified? We just don't know for sure, and probably it's best that we don't. But, you know, there's nothing they can do to move the Sea of Galilee. <laughs> As it was then, it is still today. The shore is the same. Seven and a half miles wide, 13 miles long, 32 miles around in circumference, 650 feet below sea level, and those waters to this day, especially on a moonlit night. It's almost as though you can hear the voices from the ancient past. Mark Twain has done a fine book called The Innocents Abroad, dated 1867. And from that book, these words are found. Our thoughts wander constantly to the practical concerns of life and refuse to dwell upon things that seem vague and unreal. But when the day is done, 
Even the most unimpressionable must yield to the dreamy influences of this tranquil starlight. The old traditions of the place steal upon his memory and haunt his reveries and and then his fancy clothes all sights and sounds with the supernatural. In the lapping of the waves upon the beach, he hears the dip of ghostly oars. In the secret noises of the night, he hears spirit voices. In the soft sweep of the breeze, the rush of invisible wings. Phantom ships are on the sea. The dead of 20 centuries come forth from the tombs. And in the dirges of the night wind, the songs of old forgotten ages find utterance again. In the starlight, Galilee has no boundaries but the broad compass of the heavens and is a theater for great events. And so it was. That's where it all started, Jesus calling his 12. In the first chapter of Mark, we come to that first scene at the Sea of Galilee where Jesus is walking along the familiar shores. One wonders, since he was a Galilean, if he may have played along the shores as a little boy. One wonders if he may not have taken a sail across the sea as a teenager after his work in the carpenter shop was done. He knew those waters. And even though they did not know him, he knew those men. In Mark 1, verse 16, as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. I've done that. Many of you have done that. I was raised in the Gulf waters of uh, South Texas, and I remember as my granddaddy taught me to cast a net as we would catch the bait or seining for shrimp. You ever do that? If you ever do that, you know you don't want to do it for a living. It's hard work. And these men had worked that day. They were commercial fishermen, Simon and Andrew, and this stranger came along out of nowhere into their lives. And he said to them, verse 17, follow me and, and, and I will make you become fishers of men. Remarkably, we read in verse 18, they immediately left their nets and followed him. Tell me, would you have done that? He comes to your desk as a, as a busy executive assistant and he says to you, I will, I will help you do a work for me if you will just follow me and, and leave this career. Would you stand up and turn off your computer and walk out the door? You're engaged in sales and God's using you in a special way and is prospering your efforts and he walks along your place of business and he says, uh, I will provide you a product that no one could turn, it, could turn down, and I ask you to leave all of this and to follow me. Would you, would you uh, turn in your, your slip that day and resign and follow him? It's just that kind of thing. The remarkable part of the story is the word immediately. They don't ask for any kind of job security. 
There is no retirement program provided now or later. I often thought what their wives must have heard, must have felt when they got word that night. By the way, I quit my job today and I'm following this man that came along the beach. Oh, really? What's his name? I'm not sure. I think it's Jesus. Where are you going? Well, he didn't tell us. What are you going to be doing? That's not clear either. <laughs> and they left everything and followed him. If that wasn't enough, look at the next little scene. Going a little farther, that's a little farther down the shoreline. There's another fishing vessel there tied up to the pier. And Jesus saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. So they're fishermen. They've got a business. In fact, it's the sons of Zebedee. He's in business with his boys. Verse 20, immediately he called them, James and John, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants. They've got quite a business. They've got a number of people working the nets. And we read again that they left to follow him. Remarkable. And it all started there. The beginning of calling of 12 men who would walk with him for these three and a half years. And what a three and a half year ride. All the things that they saw and learned and experienced, all the things that they suffered, the, the feeling of being misunderstood and the, those times when they found themselves in the, in the limelight of attention and they were just fishermen. Those occasions when Jesus would work miracles and heal the sick and, 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 and calm the troubled and give sight to the blind. And all those things were theirs to remember. And then he died. And then he died. We read in Mark 14, 50, as the torture continued and as they nailed him to a cross, they all forsook him and fled like rats on a sinking ship. It was over. Done. We've left all this to follow him to these things? He's dead. Some must have watched from a distance as they sealed the tomb, having prepared him for burial. And if the death wasn't bad enough, the sealed tomb was sort of the last straw and was over. I know, I know. That first Easter morning, he arose and presented himself to the women who came first. And they told them, the men, and some of them went to the tomb and they saw the empty tomb. And a few were visited by Jesus on a couple of other occasions but it was all sort of over. It was over. You, you see, our problem in the 20th century is that we know how the story unfolds and we, we see the end from the beginning, at least in their relationship with him. We don't appreciate, we can't appreciate that sense of limbo as they're caught in the backwash of shattered dreams and uh, broken hopes and... and uh, Peter's denial, you, you, three times he said, I don't know him. He even cursed to prove it or swore that he didn't know him. And so when we get to chapter 21 of John, we're back at this old sea, back in the familiar haunts, the reveries, as Mark Twain put it. We're back with a group of those fellows you wonder what they talked about, don't you? You, remember, you? you must wonder how many of their sentences began with, remember when? Remember when we were here on 
on the boat. Maybe James and John's dad has died since they left. Maybe Zebedee's gone, just his mother. Their mother remains. Remember how bright the horizon seemed? Ah. Verse 2 tells us in John 21 that there were together Simon, Thomas, who is called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana, the sons of Zebedee, we met them, James and John, and there were two others who were not named. There are seven in all, and they're back at the sea. Not surprisingly, Peter says, I'm going fishing. If you love to fish, you understand that. Tension mounts, concerns grow, your worry list is longer than your prayer list. You got things sort of sideways in your mind. You can't figure out how life's supposed to be put together. And if you've got the sea available and if you can find your rod, <laughs> you're going to go fishing. I've been there dozens of times in my life. Let's just go fishing. And the others went along with him and said, we will come with you. They went out and got in the boat and <laughs> that night they caught nothing. I've been there too. I mean, night fishing is pretty good fishing. If you can get a torch and the light's bright enough, the fish will come up and you can catch them with the nets that they used in the Sea of Galilee. These old fellows knew how to use the, use the nets. They were commercial fishermen, remember. But they caught nothing. I've cast a net enough to know that that's hard work, especially when it gets wet. And you're hauling in and throwing out and hauling in and throwing out and hauling in and throwing out that same bell-shaped net and you just can't catch them. You just can't even, can't even catch your bait. I've seen times when I've eaten the bait because I didn't have any fish to eat. That's how bad it's been for us. They caught nothing. Light dawns on the horizon and a shadowy figure walks across the shoreline and they don't know who it is and Day is breaking, verse 4, and John tells us, because he's had 60 years to think about it as he writes this story, Jesus therefore said to them, Hey, fellas, you don't have any fish, do you? They answer, No! You know how you do when people say the obvious. I mean, you've been fishing all night. I mean, there's not a lot of diplomacy in the no. No! He calls them fellas. It's paideon. We get our word pediatrics or pediatrician from the Greek word. He calls them fellas or guys or men or not really men. Boys is a good way. Boy. Hey, guys, you don't have any fish, do you? Nope. Cast your net on the right side of the boat. You know what's impressive to me in the story? They don't argue with him. They don't know who he is. But believe me, if somebody's got an idea, you try it when you haven't caught anything. Try it over there. So, and the text tells us that they had so many fish, they were not able to haul it in because of the great number. In fact, verse 11 numbers them for us, 153. You know that was an eyewitness. Fishermen always number their fish. They never say, oh, we got about a dozen. They say, we got 13 then they'll tell you the big one got away. But here, the big one they caught. They were large fish. If I figure this correctly, if they were three, three and a half pounds each, we got a quarter of a ton of fish. We got a, we got a net full of fish. And the remarkable thing also is that the net doesn't break. So they can't even get this net into the boat. It's so full of big fish. Now here's where it really gets great. You can almost hear it when you visit the Sea of Galilee. 
these days. St- st- Peter, John says, it's the Lord. It's Jesus. Peter grabs his outer garment. See, he's, he's down to his underclothes by now. He's been working, getting those fish. And he, he grabs his outer garment and whoosh, he plunges into the sea. I love that about Peter. Isn't it great to be with a few Peters? You have a Peter as a friend. I mean, you're standing there thinking how nice the water looks and your buddy whoosh, dives in. He's already on his way swimming to the shore. If that's Jesus, that's where I want to be. Who cares about the fish? And doesn't it tell you something about their relationship that Peter doesn't hesitate? Doesn't say, oh, if only I hadn't denied him. If only I'd built a relationship back with him, I'd think he might want to talk to me. He just grabs his outer garment and plunges into the sea and starts swimming toward the shore. It's a great setting. Verse 9, when they got upon the land... This is so like Jesus. They saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it. (laughs) Where'd he get his fish? (laughs) Well, see, when you make fish, you got them trained. Hey, fish, get on the fire. (laughs) No, that's enough. That's enough. Don't all you guys come out there. So he's got a fire full of fish. He's got smoke curling up above, and he's got the the smoke curling from the fire. This is a great scene. If you love the outdoors, you love this setting. You just pay big money for this kind of setting. In fact, (laughs) I have a friend who um, guides us when we hunt in Alaska. I've only done it a time or two. He said, sometime I have people come to Alaska thinking they're going to save money by hunting big game up here. And I always tell them the first night, look, if you wanted to save money instead of coming to Alaska to hunt and fish, you should have gotten in the shower with a handful of $20 bills and start tearing them up as fast as you can tear them up and let them drain right down out in the shower for about 30 minutes and you'll save money. Just stay home, tear up $20 bills and it'll all work out right. Isn't that a funny line? When you, when, when you love the out of doors, you kind of live for the campfire. This is a great setting. Seven of his closest, all good friends, they've been together for three years and more, and Jesus with his scars. This is early dawn, charcoal broiled fish, little, little bread that you've heated over the fire. It's, 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 it, it just doesn't get any better. This is really life is beautiful moment. This is a great moment. They're kicking back. Unannounced, unexpected, Jesus focuses in on Peter's eyes like a laser. He calls his name. Simon, do you love me more than these? All right. Imagine being Simon. Your failure is known by all of your peers. You've not blown it once. You've blown it three times. They know that. They forsook him, but they never denied him. You've gone a whole nine yards and then some. Bad track record. Ah, he calls your name. You don't want that. And of all things, he asks a comparative question more than these. Could have meant more than you love fishing and all that goes with the career. Probably didn't mean that. 
It could mean, do you love me more than you love these men? Probably didn't mean that. That's a little remote. I think it means just way, just way you feel it means here. You love me more than you love these. I don't want to read into this more than I should, but uh, John wrote in common Greek. They didn't speak Greek. These are Galileans. They spoke Aramaic, which explains why Jesus on the cross screamed, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That's, a, that's an Aramaic statement. That's why they didn't understand him. The Romans thought he was calling for Elijah. He was of Aramaic tongue, and that's what they spoke. But when John records it, God leads him to record it in Greek. And the Greek is such a precise language that even the inflection or the tones of Aramaic could be communicated in Greek so they can, you can almost feel like you're hearing the words that were said. He uses agape. That's the word Christians today understand. We use it sometime. Agapao, supreme love. Do you have a supreme commitment to me that would cause all other commitments to be, to be eclipsed? Would fade in significance? Is your love for me so great that it's greater than any other love for anyone else regardless of your own needs or wants or desires? It's that kind of love. It's a one-way love. It's not a reciprocal love. That's phileo. That's a fondness. Do you have supreme love for me, Simon? It doesn't call him Peter. That word means rock. And his character wasn't very rock-like. He calls him by his name, which some suggest means vacillating one, shifting one, moody. You have a supreme love for me. Well, he's on the spot. Verse 15 gives us his answer. Yes, Lord, you know that I'm fond of you. Imagine what it was like for these men to sit across from Jesus and answer his questions. You're listening to Insight for Living and the Bible teaching of Chuck Swindoll. He's teaching today from John chapter 21. The title of his message is Listening to Jesus Beside the Sea. Our prayer is that this teaching series on the life and ministry of Jesus has inspired you to learn more about him. To help you dig deeper, you'll find a full collection of helpful resources at insightforliving.ca. And if it's a book you're searching for, Chuck has written a biography on the life of Jesus. It's called The Greatest Life of All. Plus, every sermon in this teaching series has been recorded on CD. The complete collection of 20 messages is available today. For the biography on Jesus and the audio CDs for this teaching series, just go to insightforliving.ca. Well, most of us are carefully watching the news coming from Eastern Europe and further south in Israel. These are unsettling times. Innocent families have been violated. They continue to live in fear of what's coming next. To that end, Insight for Living is privileged to have a voice, not only on North American soil, but far beyond our own borders. In many cases, Chuck's voice is translated into other languages, so people have access to the life-changing message of Jesus. For instance, Insight for Living can be heard in 11 different languages, and the program is distributed here locally because people like you give generously to Insight for Living. If you've yet to join this effort, we invite you to become a monthly partner. As a monthly giver to Insight for Living, God will use your generosity to deliver His message to the men and women here in our country who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. 
Becoming a monthly partner is easy when you follow the instructions at insightforliving.ca partner or give us a call at 1-800-663-7639. I'm Bill Meyer. Join us when Chuck Swindoll continues his biographical study of Jesus called The Greatest Life of All, Friday on Insight for Living. The preceding message, Listening to Jesus Beside the Sea, was copyrighted in 1999, and the sound recording was copyrighted in 2024 by Charles R. Swindoll, Incorporated. All rights are reserved worldwide. Duplication of copyrighted material for commercial use is strictly prohibited.